you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Most of us have heard of the accident at Chernobyl, the worst disaster in the history of nuclear power generation. The Chernobyl power station was located in the town of Pripyat, about 10 miles northwest of the city of Chernobyl and 65 miles north of Kiev, Ukraine. The station consisted of four reactors, each capable of producing 1,000 megawatts of electric power. The catastrophe occurred in 1986, when technicians at Reactor Unit 4 conducted a poorly designed experiment. Workers shut down the reactor's power regulating system and its emergency safety systems, and they withdrew most of the control rods from its core. These mistakes started a chain reaction, and at 1.23 a.m. on April 26th, the core spiraled out of control. Several explosions triggered a large fireball and blew off the heavy steel and concrete lid of the reactor. This and the ensuing fire in the graphite reactor core released large amounts of radioactive material into the atmosphere, where it was carried long distances through the air. On April 27th, the 30,000 inhabitants of Pripyat were evacuated. The Soviet Union attempted to cover up the tragedy but on April 28th, the alarm sounded at Forsmark, Sweden's second-largest nuclear power plant. A thorough scan revealed high levels of radiation coming from 1,100 kilometers away in the Ukrainian town of Chernobyl. The early detection by the Forsmark plant played a crucial role in forcing Soviet authorities to open up about the disaster that had occurred just two days before. When the Soviet government admitted there had been an accident at Chernobyl, it sparked an international outcry over the dangers posed by the radioactive emissions. When the team at the Forsmark plant alerted the world to the danger of the Chernobyl disaster, the world listened. Following the crisis, policies and international agreements were developed in order to better protect human health and the environment. However, when one woman blew the whistle on the nuclear power plant where she was employed, she ended up dead, killed in a fatal car crash. Was she murdered because of her actions against a large, powerful company? Was it a conspiracy or a tragic accident? Stay with me as we discuss the mysterious death of American chemical technician Karen Silkwood. I'm Jaden McKell, and you're listening to Straight Up Enigmas. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Before we start this week's episode, a quick reminder that if you enjoy the show, it would be amazing if you could head over to Apple Music, 
hit the subscribe button and drop a review. It really helps out the show. Connect with us on social media, where we post each episode as it airs. Find us on Instagram at Straight Up Enigmas and Twitter at Straight Enigmas. Source information for all of the articles used in our research can be found in the show notes and on our website at straightupenigmas.home.blog. Thanks for listening, everyone, and without further ado, let's get back to the show. Karen Silkwood was born in Texas as the oldest of three daughters. In high school, she discovered her passion for chemistry. She received a full college scholarship to study medical technology, but after a year, she left school to marry and have three children of her own. In 1972, she separated from her husband, leaving custody of her children to their father. She took a job with Kerr-McGee's Cimarron River Nuclear Facility in Oklahoma, making plutonium fuel rods for nuclear reactors. At the time, Kerr-McGee was one of 10 plutonium plants in the country. While there, she joined the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, or the OCAW, and participated in a nine-week union strike. She was the first woman ever elected to the local union's three-person bargaining committee, and she was soon assigned to health and safety matters. In her investigations, Silkwood found a plethora of problems. Spills, poor training, health regulation violations, falsification of records, and even some missing plutonium, a highly radioactive material. In September 1974, Silkwood attended a meeting where the OCAW discussed the connection between plutonium exposure and cancer. She was shocked and angered to find out just how negligent Kerr-McGee was being in regards to its employees. Along with two other union members, Silkwood testified before the Atomic Energy Commission in Washington, D.C. about Kerr-McGee. This action labeled her as a troublemaker, and she experienced severe harassment from then on. This didn't stop her, though. Silkwood began collecting Kerr-McGee documents as evidence. The stress of her activism began affecting her sleep, so her doctor prescribed her medication known as Quaaludes. Friends told Rolling Stone that she was taking the pills during the day, too. Her mother said she called home every night scared and crying. She thought she was dying, recalled her mother. On the night of November 13, 1974, 28-year-old Silkwood was headed to Oklahoma City to meet her boyfriend, Drew Stevens, and a New York Times reporter carrying a manila folder full of documents and photos she said would demonstrate the extent of the safety problems. But she never made it to the meeting. Her Honda Civic hatchback ran off the road and smashed into a concrete culvert wall en route, killing her instantly. The folder full of evidence? It was never found, though the highway patrolman who helped recover Slickwood's body from the Highway 74 culvert says he noticed several documents scattered in the mud and tossed them in the back of her wrecked Honda. State troopers initially claimed Silkwood had fallen asleep at the wheel. Her mother flat out disagreed with the idea, saying that Silkwood called her boyfriend 15 minutes before she was killed to say she was coming with the evidence in tow. Could she really have fallen asleep if she was so excited? 
What's even more strange is that a private investigator working for the union, A.O. Pipkin, announced he had discovered substantial evidence. A fresh dent in the Honda's rear bumper, inconsistencies with the highway's contour and skid marks at the scene, that indicated a hit-and-run assailant had forced Silkwood off the road. An autopsy revealed dangerously high levels of radiation, but because traces of alcohol and prescription sedatives were also found in her blood, her death was ruled an accident. Silkwood's parents sued Kermagee for $11.5 million in damages. The case included testimony by Dr. John Goffman, a scientist who worked with plutonium. He testified that Silkwood's lungs had contained almost twice as much of the dangerous metal as the amount that can induce cancer. Anyone exposed to that amount of plutonium is married to lung cancer, he said. It is then an inevitable process. But just how the plutonium got into her system, including her lungs and her digestive tract, was as mysterious as the cause of the crash. Not only had she recently set off plant monitors that tested for radioactivity and been scrubbed clean, but plutonium contamination had been found in her apartment as well. In her kitchen, her bathroom, and in a bologna and cheese sandwich in her refrigerator. Lawyers for Kermagee hypothesized that Silkwood had intentionally taken plutonium home to contaminate herself in order to embarrass the company. They argued that she was emotionally unstable and had possibly been affected by the use of tranquilizers. She was, they suggested, kinky. The jury refused to believe these accusations, awarding $10.5 million to the motherless children. The civil trial became the longest in Oklahoma history, and the award was the largest for punitive damages ever made. Unfortunately, this amount was reduced to a mere $5,000 after an appeal. The case wasn't closed until 1986, when an out-of-court settlement awarded the estate $1.38 million. Kerr McGee closed its Cimarron River plant in 1975. Silkwood became a posthumous celebrity, inspiring a 1983 movie, Silkwood, starring Meryl Streep. Some critics took issue with her glorification, and a New York Times review of the film concluded that the evidence in the case suggests that Miss Silkwood was not a nuclear Joan of Arc, but an activist who became a victim of her own infatuation with drugs. Despite these negative views, her death galvanized the anti-nuclear community, and the nuclear companies were forced to make many changes that protect workers' lives and health to this day. We'll be back right after this. As you all know, studying criminal cases and historical mysteries is my passion, but even I need a break sometimes. When I feel like I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a puzzle game you can play right on your phone, and it's really cool because you go through all these levels solving challenging puzzles that actually engage your brain. It's a casual game that anyone can play, and it's really, really fun. I just made it to level 16 and only started playing a few days ago. The great thing about it is that it doesn't take up much of your time, but I love it because it fills up those moments where you wish you had something to do, aside from scrolling through social media over and over again. 
The other day, I was in the waiting room at the doctor's office for what felt like forever, but having this game to play made the time go by so much faster. You also don't need internet connection to play, so it's great for when you don't have any connection, like on an airplane for example. The game is also visually stimulating, with its bright colors and adorable characters. Plus, Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events, so it never gets old. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. The Devil was once the most beautiful and favored of all the heavenly host. But once infected with the sin of pride, he was cast out of the Lord's sight into the farthest depths of hell. In his humiliation, the devil raged, "'Tis better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. My offspring, the October Pod, will one day conquer mankind and all the Lord's works. And so, reborn once each month at 1.38 a.m. by man's reckoning of time, the October Pod rises from its slumber, seeking what bold individualists it may devour. Edward October presents October Pod, a terrifying spook show. Available now on YouTube, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and at OctoberPodVHS.com. OctoberPod, retro horror for bold individualists. Did Karen Silkwood deliberately contaminate herself? Or did she come into contact with plutonium because of careless safety standards at the plant? Or, most disturbing of all, did someone deliberately dose her with plutonium as a way to silence her? Did she drive off the road, or was she forced off? A year and a half after Silkwood's death, Jackie Sruji, a journalist from Nashville, announced she could solve the mystery. The key, she insisted, was the missing manila folder. Silkwood must have unwittingly collected documents that would have uncovered a nuclear smuggling ring at the plant. The smugglers must have poisoned Silkwood with plutonium to intimidate her and keep her quarantined. When Silkwood bravely returned to the plant, they ran her off the road and stole her folder. Sruji did know a lot about the case because her close friend Larry Olson was the FBI agent who investigated Silkwood's death. During his examination of Silkwood's case, Olson turned to the trace of alcohol that had been found in her bloodstream. He discovered that the alcohol was not enough to contribute to her falling asleep at the wheel. More important were the 0.35 milligrams of methaquilone the autopsy revealed. Was 0.35 milligrams, less than one pill of the quaaludes prescribed to help Silkwood sleep at night, enough to lull her to sleep on the road? The Oklahoma City medical examiner said yes. Eight independent toxicologists disagreed, partly because they felt Silkwood had built up a tolerance on a regular diet of the pills. 
Olson began looking into the part of the case that was truly enigmatic, the flecks of plutonium that had suddenly appeared on Silkwood's skin and in her digestive system the week before her death. The Atomic Energy Commission, AEC, which then regulated the nuclear industry, had investigated her contamination and concluded that Silkwood had been infected in her apartment. Olson was confused how the plutonium, which by law had to be kept under strict security, could have escaped the plant. Kerr McGee contended that Silkwood had deliberately swallowed a microscopic dose of plutonium at work and walked undetected past the alpha counters at the door, which can't spot internal contamination, as part of a wild plot to humiliate the company. At the time, Silkwood was regularly emptying her urine and fecal wastes into plastic one-quart boxes for lab tests, because four months earlier she had been contaminated in a mishap at the plant, and the company was required to monitor her health. Kerr-McGee officials suspected Silkwood tried to doctor her waste samples to prove the plant was chronically unsafe. But this theory didn't seem to fit at least in Olson's eyes. Silkwood's friends informed him that she had been genuinely scared when she found out her insides were corrupted with plutonium, which can cause cancer even in small doses. That description just didn't match with a scheming plutonium pill popper. And 73 workers at the plant had been contaminated in the previous four years. One more could not be that much more embarrassing for the company and hardly worth the risk to Silkwood. In December 1974, around 40 to 60 pounds of plutonium were found to be missing from the nuclear plant. In that quantity, plutonium is highly valued contraband. Only 12 pounds are needed for a bomb capable of destroying a medium-sized city. The grade of plutonium being processed at Kerr-McGee had a price set by the government of $70 a gram, but on the black market, it could sell for 5 to 10 times that much. 60 pounds could be worth 5 to 10 million. When Olson asked FBI headquarters for the go-ahead to look into his new theory, their response was an unequivocal no. Washington told Olson to forget about the missing plutonium that it didn't have anything to do with the Silkwood case. Olson was so stuck on his theory that he called Joe Pennington, a young, prize-winning newsman at a radio station in Oklahoma City. In late January, Pennington went on the air with the idea that smugglers were responsible for the missing plutonium. After his broadcast, Pennington was pressured by the radio station and Kerr-McGee to drop the story. Rather than discard his theory, Pennington left the radio station and took up a new job at a different station in Columbus, Ohio. He had only been in Columbus a few weeks when Olson called again. The FBI agent told Pennington he had just learned from a Kerr-McGee source that up to 120 pounds of plutonium were now missing, most of it since Silkwood's death. Olson now suspected OCAW higher-ups of stealing the plutonium and contaminating Silkwood to undermine Kerr-McGee. He felt Silkwood had possibly been a pawn or a patsy. Olson begged Pennington to turn his attention to the OCAW, but Pennington's new employer was not interested in a story that was four months old and four states away. 
And by this time, the media in Oklahoma City had also begun to neglect the Silkwood case. The Justice Department, which has jurisdiction over the FBI, was even more anxious to finish up the case. The official end came rapidly. In mid-April, a young lawyer named Thomas Goldstein was assigned to draft a final fact memorandum, a procedure which usually means sifting through all the evidence and reaching an independent verdict. Goldstein made no attempt to clarify the contradictions that Olson had found. In fact, he never even contacted Olson. On April 29th, Goldstein issued his fact memorandum. These reports are often detailed accounts that reach 100 pages or more. Goldstein's report was four and a half pages long. His conclusion? No foul play. What do you think? Was Karen Silkwood deliberately dosed with plutonium to silence her? Did she know too much about a secret smuggling ring? Did she purposefully poison herself? Or was her death just a tragic accident? Find us on Instagram at Straight Up Enigmas or Twitter at Straight Enigmas and let us know. You can also contact us through email at straightupenigmas at gmail.com or through our website, straightupenigmas.home.blog. If you like the show, please remember to hop onto Apple Music to give us a five-star rating. It really helps the podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time on Straight Up Enigmas. Enigmas.